Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm thrilled to welcome to the studio today the filmmaking team behind what I assume to be the first homoerotic evangelical exorcist film. Welcome to the studio, John C. Clark and Bree Williams. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Yes. I'm so excited. I love this movie, and we are going to dig into it Yay. today. But first... I'm going to start the show the way I always do, by asking you both the same first question I ask all of my guests, and it's simply this. Why horror? What's your attraction? What's the relation to the genre? Interpret that however you want, but why horror? Um, so my gateway into horror was definitely the scary stories to tell in the dark books as mm. a child, uh, like kindergarten through second grade. I was obsessed with those books and the illustrations and had a little like scary stories club at recess where we'd hide under the bushes and read them to each other. Um, so that was for sure my gateway. And then when I got really into movies later, like in middle school, I was drawn to horror immediately. Um, I think, I think partially like in a weird way, um, it's an anxiety release for me because I, I had a lot of anxiety growing up just personally. And, um, um, it's, it's there's something like really cathartic about seeing sort of worst case scenarios of things and and like right. getting through them like like having it play out and experiencing all those feelings and um so like puberty I watched a lot of like just violent bloody gory stuff and then <laughs> I think I matured into like psychosexual and uh and like psychological horror films later it's interesting that you bring that up because a lot of guests that we've had throughout the run of the show talk about the catharsis of mm. horror films. And what I think is interesting is is it it makes sense because in a way it's like an encapsulated experience where the monster is something tangible. Yeah. So you can look at it and almost compartmentalize it whereas the existential <laughs> crush of, of of life is intangible. So it's easier to like look at 90 minutes, put your fear into that and then put it away. Absolutely. And, and, you know, because then there's the news. Yeah. But how, about, yeah. how about you, John? My I horror. have a very different uh, entrance into horror. I was raised really conservative, like in a very conservative Baptist home. Okay. Um, my parents still are. Um, and so I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies. Like, my first rated horror movie was Pretty Woman. Uh, <laughs> and my parents watched it first before <laughs> they let me watch it. Um, and uh, so it wasn't until high school that I started actually, like, kind of watching films that I wasn't supposed to. And I really started more with like the films of like Kubrick and Lynch and discovered like Todd Salons who became my hero. And so I actually more got into like the art house side. Right. And then the deeper I got into art house, then I started kind of finding foreign horror. Right. And, um, and people like Romero. And so of course, like late high school, I like fell in love with Nightmare on Elm Street, but that's like the only like kind of mainstream horror, like eighties horror series that I actually was really, that I knew, and right. like, I, I weirdly kind of went into them more from the art house side. It's interesting, though, that art house, in terms of the wider film community, a lot of art house filmmakers, the people that you listed, David Lynch, Stanley Kubrick, Todd Salons, to some degree, there are arguments to be made that they make horror films. But Definitely. when you apply a tour theory to it, then people sitting on grand juries at festivals or at the Academy who are nominating for awards make excuses that they aren't horror films. Yes. And uh, that, to me, is, is a really interesting... Because I've, I've heard this before where people will say, oh, well, I got into 
these movies, but those are horror films. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm just. But they're not what people. When you say horror, right? People assume you're thinking Friday the Thirteenth, mm-hmm. right? You know, kind of thing. Yeah, slasher. Um, they're you're thinking they think of slasher or monster movies, and that's just like. That was never really an interest for me. I ended right. up kind of going back and watching many of those films later. Right. Um, you know, and I mean, I love movies like Texas Chainsaw and Alien, of course, and all those, all that stuff. But just for some reason that I think it was actually like, you know, like the late 2000s, early or late 90s, early 2000s. It was like the amazing slate of like Japanese horror films, Audition and yeah. right. like that stuff was fascinating to me. But I, I went into those because I was interested in the directors right audition is the only movie in my life experience that i've got physically ill in a movie theater <laughs> uh because it just comes at you yeah you're oh this is nice oh no it's not no, no I, don't, I don't feel comfortable <laughs> the, the dramatic about this shift is so, yeah yeah because it is it's like a romantic comedy for about n- like yeah. 80 minutes and then the last minute it's like gotcha <laughs> yeah i had a i had a time with that one yeah Ichi the Killer I had to like take a minute same director uh, yeah. Takashi Mika. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I stepped out outside of the theater like it wasn't a walkout I was just like I feel dizzy <laughs> but it's nice to know that films can still affect us in that way Suicide Maybe- Club made me pause it like I was at home watching it but I actually had to pause it and like just take a minute because it was <laughs> that's a movie that I haven't thought about in a while but when it came out I was obsessed I'm, I, I'm still, I still love it it's like my Facebook profile picture <laughs> with that with them all on the train platform yeah, mm-hmm. about to jump. I cannot <laughs> take a metro train it, without thinking about it which really is probably fucked I mean I was like just like very disturbed but uh, for listeners who haven't seen The Suicide Club it's a must watch if you are feeling you know in need of being unnerved uh, yes, mm-hmm. it's 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 a very psycho, uh, sexual, crazy art house. It's a little bit of everything. There's a rock number. There's a mass suicide. Mm-hmm. There's has it all. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a girl. There's a girl group with hidden messages. Right. There's a copy machine that prints out human <laughs> hair. <laughs> the more I like start like explaining certain art house films to people, it just sounds like I'm making it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was trying to uh, give someone the plot of Phenomena recently, the uh, Jennifer Connelly Argento movie. Yeah. And the more you talk about it, you're like, this just sounds like fan fiction mm-hmm. she she can talk to bugs but donald pleasance has a pet monkey and there's a serial killer and she's the daughter of a rock star in sweden or whatever and you're like what? uh but um do you think that because you made a film that has homoerotic themes um horror it has this strong correlation between identity politics and representation of other and do you think that fans who come at the genre from an lgbtq lens are drawn to it for particular reasons i don't know i mean i know there's a long history of queer filmmakers that make horror films not Mm -hmm. necessarily queer horror right but, but i do think there's maybe something about you know being closeted and having this like having people tell you that who you are is right. wrong that you kind of feel like the monster so i think maybe there is an interest in that perhaps i don't know i have nothing to add to that i mean i, <laughs> I think there's definitely something there but it's I, I haven't parsed it in my mind well i mean we talk about identity a lot on the show but i really wanted to ask specifically that question with relation to your film a closer walk with thee because it's a real identity crisis of a movie yes yeah and uh, so I want to dig into it because this film is really about kind of the struggle that a lot of people who are finding their ad- identity 
deal with, especially when negotiating the world of faith and religion as well. And um, you mentioned that you came from a strict Baptist home, yeah. so I assume that there are uh, some personal elements involved in the story. Elements, yeah. yeah, that's actually why I initially asked Bree to come on board, was that I felt that it was... That, that, well, initially it just was, I said, I want to make a horror movie with evangelical music because right. most religious horror is Catholic. You right. Know? And like, it was just understandable. It's a really deep mind. There's a lot of material. But I was like, I wanted a horror movie that resembled my childhood. So I was like, well, can we? So we started talking about it. And once we kind of determined that we were going to have this kind of queer kid struggling between his sexuality and his religion, I was like, this is too close to home. I can't write this. Right. So that's when, like, so we developed the story together, but that's kind of why I was like, hey, do you want to work on this with me? Because I need someone else that can do this. So how do you two know each other? Um, we just have a mutual friend. Uh, that introduced Who is us. actually in, who's in the film. She plays Pamela, the homeless woman. Oh. She plays, she's in every, almost everything. I've All my shorts and music videos. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so just maybe mutual friend in the... Yeah, she invited us to a screening with some other people, and then she ditched us. And yeah, it was like so us and like together. a married couple. <laughs> so we ended up chatting together all night. And, <laughs> and then you made this film. And then we made this film. <laughs> and you uh, you wrote it together. Uh, I, I wrote it. We came up with a story okay. together, though. Because yes. I, I saw that you both share a lot of credits on yeah, the movie. Yeah, we co-direct, so. I yeah. wrote, and we have story by credit together. And when he approached you mm-hmm. with this kind of heavy subject matter yeah. especially for a horror project yeah what was your initial take on it um i was super excited i come from a non-religious background so i approach religion with like really fresh and sort of wondering eyes and um i'm really interested in like to me coming from not having a context in childhood for it right uh it feels like kink to me. Like when I read about religious stuff, there's so much dominance and submission and like, it just, re- it's just like so rich in, right. in like kink and erotica unintentionally that like, that was very exciting to me. So when he talked about, um, having potential exorcism stuff, I was like, obviously like sadomasochistic exorcisms are like right. what we're, what we're going to do here. <laughs> but do you think there's a stigma too with, religion in the way that you look at the, the history of horror it's a theme that we come back mm, to yeah. it's supposed yeah. to be this th- like you know the exorcist all these european films with like demon nuns mm-hmm. and you said catholicism comes up a lot but it's not the only thing it's supposed to be ostensibly something that we are supposed to find solace in right but instead we have all this evidence that it kind of like scares the shit out of people yeah yeah definitely i i don't know i it's so i i'm assuming that there what what is the connection to horror for you in religion um i mean so like i mean there are people in my life like my parents uh, their their religion has inspired them to become foster parents and they're mm-hmm. amazing people and so i do think religion can inspire good right. but like i mean i was raised in a hellfire and brimstone type of church and like i mean i was you know when i went to sunday school every day it was like i was being told that gays were going to hell like there was no way I could go to heaven because of my sexuality, and it was just that's horrifying. Like, right. I mean, it was a young kid being taught that, like, basically, I had a like if I was going to act on my feelings, I was going to live a life of eternal torment. I mean, that's horror. <laughs> that's yeah, true. Absolutely, horror. yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really inspire the warm and fuzzies. No. Uh, so, in the context of this film, um, we track the journey of a character who is a part of a group of 
evangelical mi- missionaries? Would that be the way? Yes. It's, yeah, yeah. Well, so it's also there's this growing movement of churches like my like the church I was raised in. They don't do exorcisms. Okay. Most evangelicals don't believe in that. But there's this growing movement of what are called deliverance churches that mm-hmm. rediscovered, um, and they believe in demonic possession and exorcisms. And there's a, lots of videos online. We even went to an exorcism performed by one of the guys. Yeah, oh. it's more of like an everyday occurrence rather than like in Catholicism you see it as sort of like this long process and rarely done and like these deliverance churches it's sort of just average like everyday form like how you deal with problems but let's talk about attending a real exorcism (laughs) what was that like Uh, the person being ex- er, being well delivered uh, wasn't a very good actress, so <laughs> that's and there was she did vomit into a trash can though. Yeah, there was that. I mean, um, given the right Friday night, I will too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's um, it was at the LAX Marriott in the basement. There was a horror convention happening in the other part of the hotel, which was hysterical. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought uh, we thought we were like oh, we're not the only people here coming to like. Like intrigued by this, kind of laughing at it. Like, um, uh, but then actually, once we were there, it was actually more sad because there was just, I mean, this guy, I don't, we, 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 we reference him in the credits, but this guy, he's a huckster. You know, he yeah, takes people's he's just money. Yeah, uh, exploiting people and taking advantage of people who clearly, like, aren't wealthy people and uh, solving their problems through this method. And did, did you like buy tickets to it? Is uh, that I think it was we free to did, go. Uh, you, was it okay? You yeah. just have you just are really uh, hard sold on like books, books. and uh, uh, he ritual sold, like, supplies crosses that he blessed for like a hundred dollars that obviously were made in like he also Indonesia ran like an cents. exorcism school so that you could um, you could achieve different levels of exorcist by taking classes online, which is looked very expensive. Oh. Well, it's normally five thousand dollars, but it was only five hundred. There was a special it's a limited there. time only. How generous! Yeah, That's so yeah. nice. <laughs> uh, so, in the film, you have this group of, of religious kids, essentially, mm-hmm. well, young adults. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, I just call everyone kids. kids. And I need yeah. to. I need to get over it. And they are in a kind of down-and-out neighborhood, and, yeah. and their mission is to save people. Yes, uh, I'm assuming through exorcism of... of, Mm -hmm. It's one of their methods. Yeah, one of their methods. But the other just saving people, baptisms. And we chart the journey of one of the members of this group who is all in, but he also has some some identity issues going on where we infer that he is gay, but this this crew is not into that. And he's particularly attracted to the the sort of male pastor of the group, which is his, his, his big problem. Right. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of long and ga- glances in this movie, Indeed, and I'm, yes. I'm yeah, it here for it. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, a lot of the there's a lot of Kenneth Anger inspired shots of like of like erotica, like you know, homoerotic moments. <laughs> and the horror of the film comes from sort of the escalation of his his revelation of who he is and the reaction that comes and the subsequent exorcism that's implied by by the uh, tagline of the film. Uh, Talk to me just a little bit of about putting this story together, um, because it goes in from dark places to darker places. And, and what was just the journey like? Hmm. Um, do you want to talk? About um, I mean, you wrote it, but <laughs> I mean, I guess one. Okay, so one thing I've recently, I kind of we talked about recently was like, in a way, the film it's structured as a coming out film, right? Although it kind of subverts that because mm-hmm. you know it's it's the traditional coming out film. The 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 main character has one outlet. Right. Usually has a best friend or a mom or a, a, like a place he can go or she can go to kind of be to, to be himself 
Right. Um, and so we basically we put this character into a position where he didn't have that. Right. There's there is no, there's no one, and he he thinks he does with Kara at one point in the film, and then it just it just turns out that she's just really crazy. Um, and uh, so and then so because he's being pushed by this religious extreme religion, right. and his belief in it that it just kind of pushes him down this darker and darker place because he has no outlet. He has nowhere to go. Yeah, it's really the the religious aspect that is the thing that is pushing it darker all the time. Right. The belief and the resistance. And spoiler free, the movie does go to some pretty shocking places before the final credits roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because this is kind of controversial subject matter, you're, you're taking kind of LGBTQ identity politics, mm-hmm. this... Uh, religious angle it had to not be an easy film to get out into the world and you you had told me before the show started that you even had some trouble getting it into festivals could you talk a little bit about that what what has the reactions been Mm -hmm. um so we've had some i mean when people see it we've had some really positive reactions Mm -hmm. um but it's only it's only done a couple festivals the biggest one being nashville which gave us a couple which gave us like the two awards best actor in our program and best film in the program which was awesome that festival is amazing um but like We've only gotten into one gay and lesbian festival, and I've been told by someone that's a programmer of a different fest, he suggested that the subject matter is probably scaring off those festivals, that even though gay and lesbian festivals might be saying they want horror films, they don't necessarily want movies that are going to offend their audiences. Right. And our movie, because we are subverting kind of coming out films, which a lot of older gay and lesbian people still remember fondly. I mean, you know, all those 90s, Coming yeah, like films like Edge of Seventeen, <laughs> get real. right movies and, I, I love. Sure, but, right, yeah, but yeah. I mean, but at a certain at a certain point, they kind of started to feel tired, right. at least to us. But for older people, that was a lot of pe- a lot of times their first representation that they got to see themselves in in right. a positive light. So they still think on those films fondly, and then also we have a, without spoiling, we have a gay character committing violence right. at, at least one point in the film, and that kind of might harken back in some people's minds to all those gay serial killers and all those movies back in the day and so i can see some discomfort i kind of understand why they wouldn't it was but it surprised us we thought you know queer festivals would want it because it's a horror film and that will diversify their program and horror festivals will want it because it's a queer film and that will diversify theirs and it hasn't worked out quite (laughs) (laughs) well it's interesting and i again there are two points of 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 conversation I want to go down with regard to this. Uh, But something that's been coming up a lot in recent episodes of the show is this discussion about um, representation in queer cinema of the modern day. Because for a whole generation of us, it's exactly as you say, we were so desperate just to see representation in film at all that for a while we took what we could get. And in truth, some of it wasn't great. But then we have had a rise of, of queer cinema. There was the new queer movement of the 90s. Yes. There, was, there have been Todd Salons was part of that, Todd Haynes, all of these different filmmakers. Uh, and now, in 2017, we have our coming out movies. And that yeah. doesn't mean that we don't need new ones because there's a new generation of kids who need that. But we're visible to the point in media that we shouldn't always just be presented in a positive way because there's a full spectrum of, of human experience, even in the LGBTQ community, and some of us are good people, some of us are bad people, right. and it's just not realistic storytelling. And I think that's tough. And I think it's like an onus that we put on filmmakers, like, oh, you have to represent us in this way, but that's not true or truthful. 
Yes. Um, and it's actually, it's kind of weird to me because I feel like this, to, in my mind, this wasn't a controversial statement because it, to me it felt very clearly like the religion and what was being forced on him and the repression of his sexuality is the thing that right. is causing the violence. Uh, it didn't feel like, it felt very, like to me, um, Carrie was a big influence of mm-hmm. uh, structuring the plot because you have this repressed, sexually repressed character that um, is a very sympathetic underdog type character that just gets pushed too far and things <laughs> things Escalate, go really, yeah. really, really badly. Uh, but something that I think is interesting about this film and uh, the movie it comes out on October 17th. So by the time you listen to this, it's out there in the world. It is being distributed on DVD and Blu-ray by Altered Innocence label. Also VOD. I am on so VOD. you can watch it on Amazon or Vimeo or a couple other places. However you can, please watch this <laughs> film. It is a must-see. <laughs> What I think is interesting, I was talking to uh, our mutual friend Frank at Altered Innocence about how the film is structured. And I think if not for some of the longing looks and homoeroticism that's woven into the beginning, which tells us narratively uh, we're more on his side, there is a read of the movie that I think is is very interesting because you never really come down hard one way or the other that if I was watching this and showing it to a group of evangelicals, mm-hmm. they could infer like, oh, but gay is evil. Like it kind of, it kind of plays as, as, as on both sides, depending what lens you're looking at. And that's a, that's a credit to the film, I think is really, was that intentional to never? Uh... Yes, I think, um, so experiencing the film from the main character's point of view was central. So because right. he doesn't view his religion in this negative way and he's trying to to follow what he's supposed to do. Right. Um that you're supposed to just very much feel like identify with him and feel the things he's feeling and see what he's seeing. Right. So that's you know why it's a little complicated because it's not objective. It's 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 a very subjective movie uh, from his point of view. No, and I think that's why it's so brilliantly constructed i you know that i told you before the show started when i saw the film for the first time i was like i i I need to talk to them because this is the kind of queer cinema that we need because it inspires a conversation because you know having talked with you and hearing your stories it's it's clear to me you know the message that you have yeah but you also are letting the film do some work that inspires people to, you know, go and sit and think about it. And I think that's so important. Yeah, my my favorite kind of movies are the kind where you spend more time than the movie more more than the film's length in the in the parking lot discussing it afterwards. Right. You know, like fighting over it. Like um uh I remember I I, I lost a friend over the movie Dog Tooth. Really? Because we were like arguing in the parking lot about it, and he just like was so irritated that he just was like, "I cannot be friends with someone that likes that movie." And then like years later, he apologized, and he now we're friends again. And actually, <laughs> he, he he well, I, I won't say, but yeah, he actually helped in one way on this film, so we were friends now. But like, I love, I mean, I love that movie even more because of that. Like, <laughs> no, well, it's I think that when films inspire passion on one side of the, the fence or the other. It's done its job. I always say, uh, from the screenwriting side of things, I would rather you hate something I wrote than just be casually indifferent because it means you're thinking about it. Uh, And I think that this movie uh, is one that you really think about. Um, So 
yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm just like very reverential to the film because I think that it's so important. What what kind of reactions have you gotten from viewers? I had a very strong reaction from someone in uh, Chattanooga. We just played the One Gay and Lesbian Festival we played was there last weekend. Um, a very strong reaction, but like a very aggressive question. And I'm not going to say because it has to do with the ending, the spoiler. But um, it was interesting. She did ultimately like my answer and we ended up talking afterwards and like right. we had a really great interaction like it caused a really great conversation but she did have this one like kind of and actually that's kind of what you're saying like she came at me angry about it but then after we this we were able to discuss it right we were friends by the end of the night um and uh so that, we've had that but oh and we had the the reaction of someone not knowing if they were allowed to laugh during the movie they asked that at a Q&A like is it can I laugh is it okay <laughs> I was like yes this is you know very much uh, function as a, as a dark comedy in my mind so in certain ways you know like certain scenes and just like the, yeah. the tone yeah and certain jokes hit in certain cities and not others um, there's like w- one line that killed LA and Nashville was completely silent and it was <laughs> like what the what happened here uh, so yeah there's been some really different reactions but mostly positive I mean yeah. at least the people that have t- come up to talk to us afterwards now has your family seen the film yes and uh, how did they feel about um, it my dad came to a rough cut screening um, had a very awkward moment with him uh, with the Q&A but he was positive my mom my mom was was, was tricky because it turns out the name of the movie is her favorite hymn Oh, I didn't know this. It was my favorite <laughs> hymn as a kid. That's why I chose it. But I didn't know it's one of her. Fa- it's like her favorite hymn. Um, and so she was really nervous that we were mocking religion in general. Uh, so I had to kind of sit down and explain, like, no, mom, it's not about religion and it's not about your specific belief right. system. It's about fundamentalism and you know people that will not give any give you like, give any at all. And uh, and uh, and so when she saw it. Right. She sat next to me at, you know, at the screening in L.A. and I was terrified. Uh, but she actually she got it. She totally right. understood what the end what what it was a, what we were saying with the film. It's an interesting read, though, to uh, worry from from that perspective that religion is being victimized mm-hmm. because you know if you're watching it as a queer person, you could say, oh, well, but queer people are being victimized. Yeah. So there oh, there's in in I don't know what the happy medium is. <laughs> maybe maybe in life we're all victims. <laughs> Isn't a happy medium? That's the message here. <laughs> so we're recording on Friday the 13th, uh, and I understand, John, that it's your birthday. Yes, I was born on Friday the 13th. Really? Yes. Uh, so I'm always happy when it falls on a Friday. You know what? I, re- I always love about Friday the 13th, especially with uh, within the context of the mythology of the Friday the 13th movies, is... Uh, Pam Voorhees, Betsy Palmer's character, she makes this big deal. She's like, you know, his name was Jason. Today's his birthday. Yeah, but his birthday's the 13th. It's not actually Friday not, the 13th. That's, that's so, like, next year when it's Saturday the 13th, it's still <laughs> Jason's <what>? birthday. <laughs> and uh, so the movie uh, kind of, like, operates on, on a loose uh, concept <laughs> at best. Because um, we don't even know if he drowned, you know, on the 13th. It could have, you know. Great point. <laughs> but... Uh, what have what have you been watching lately? What what movies are inspiring you? Uh, I mean, I loved Mother. 
I absolutely adored Mother. I know, I know it's super divisive, but I, I love divisive movies. At the screening, I was at the guy sitting on my right. He pretty much yelled, what the fuck did I just watch? <laughs> as soon as the credits started, and the woman on my left started applauding like simultaneously. And I was like, yes, I love, I love, I love movies like Antichrist where people walk out either loving it or hating it. Um, so that's one recent. The Lure I finally saw recently. That's the, the mermaid. Polish, I haven't yeah. seen that yet. That Polish, looks amazing. Though. The Polish mermaid musical horror movie. Set in the eighties. I'm sold. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm it's fan, it's it's. I mean, it's yeah. It's fantastic. It's just it's it's unlike anything you've ever seen. <laughs> um, um. Yeah, I thought Get Out was amazing this year, and uh, I'm big, big, big fan of Blade Runner right now. Yeah, that's speaking of divisive. I think you know the the one two hit of Mother and Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both films that I think are mood pieces yes. for sure. Yeah. Uh, and audiences are just kind of torn up there's a division you two really like these divisive Apparently. things yeah troublemakers <laughs> well, we were working on our movie we, w- we went and saw force majeure together and like i mean i think that was kind of a bonding moment because we were still developing the script yeah, i don't know have you seen that force, force majeure yeah it's been uh yeah i, I did it's no, one of those uh it's one of those films that like we certainly interpreted as a dark comedy and mm-hmm. thought was very funny but it, uh, it's it's so subtle and dry that a lot of people are just like what is this so you watched that while you were making the film. What other influences did you draw upon making the movie? Um, for me, like I said, Carrie was a big was a big uh, some th- touchstone for me, and um, Repulsion, Roman Polanski's Repulsion. So I was just really into like sexual repression stories and like the uh, the escalation of that. So those two were my biggest influences. Um, for me, I mean, I was kind of. I was more involved with the look of the film, I guess. Um, and that they're kind of, so like I said, Kenneth Anger earlier is probably like the number one influence on me. I'm a right. huge, Scorpio Rising specifically, but there's all, and there's actually shots in the movie that are like basically direct replicas of like, like as homages uh, to shots in Scorpio Rising as well as uh, one shot in Fireworks. Um, Ozu, weirdly, the Japanese filmmaker, uh, because we shot the film entirely static camera. Uh-huh. Um, Ozu did the same thing, so I kind of looked at a lot of his stuff to see how he edited it or when shooting and to do that. Um, and also the movie Dogtooth, I realized after the fact, because that's also very static camera, was, and that's a, 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 a movie I've seen a ton. Um, and I know, well, we, not that the film resembles it in any way, but another film, a couple other films we discussed a lot in development was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mainly just the idea of like the daylight horror. We right. wanted like daylight streaming through the windows during any horror moments. Um, it's very bright, yeah. actually. Yeah. Where did you shoot? I know here in LA, but. It was like really close to USC, um, like three doors down from a crip house. Like it's, it's a, it was a rough neighborhood. USC actually has like, um, uh, security guards, like on the street, like, like, like th- right, right down the street from where yeah, we shot. It was in a, an apartment building that our friends lived in that they let us shoot there. And, um, other people were tenants of the building. So they were, you know, the, ho- the place was full of people where we were filming. So that was like an obstacle that we encountered <laughs> <laughs> often. People were not having us. We tried to smooth things over, <laughs> How long did it take to shoot? Ten. It was ten days on location, yeah. and then we did a couple other days of like running gun, like for the jogging sequences, and the Jesus scene was shot in my apartment. Um, Everyone's Jesus in their apartment. Well, of course. Well, yeah. n- n- naked dead Jesus. I mean, uh, whatever, hunky, you know? hunky naked dead. Whatever Jesus. works for you. <laughs> <laughs> Is there? Any other kind? I, don't <laughs> I, I think not. <laughs> so, Brie, you live in Portland. Yes. And you're uh, down here visiting, I assume, for John's birthday. And I am, as well, yeah. It coincides with the release it of the does. film. Yep. Uh, have you 
always been in Portland? No. Um, I grew up near there in the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. and I've lived in L.A. for the last six and a half years, and I just moved back up to Portland last year. Um, so get- you made the movie before you left. Yes. Because mm-hmm. I was wondering how you navigate a partnership when one of you is not in the state. <laughs> yeah, I was living here at the time through the development process and everything so and even the post process yeah the very long post process yeah, we edited for a really long time because we both uh worked <laughs> during the day and so we um we were just editing on nights and weekends and it took us like a year i want to say well be- well for editing the edit itself was done before a year but in addition to like sound design yeah and then like in coloring yeah it took a, a little over a year for post now are you cooking anything new do you have new schemes um al- always thinking we don't have any uh, projects together that are in the works right now. I have a script that I'm working on, um, but no production plans currently. So uh, another queer horror thing, though. And uh, I've been writing for a podcast called Welcome to Night Vale. Uh, doing some I've episodes. Heard of but, it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so that's what I've been. That's what I've been up to. Excellent. And her episodes on Welcome to Nightville are amazing. And if you've never Thank listened you, to Welcome to Nightville, just go listen to hers and it'll get you into it. Welcome to Nightville also is a narrative podcast that mm-hmm. does a lot with queer characters. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the protagonist is a queer character. Yeah. And, uh, a lot of horror, sci fi elements, surreal horror stuff happening in that podcast. It's a great show. I love it. Um, for those of you who don't know, Welcome to Night Vale is a show that is centered around the community radio station of this very unique and peculiar town uh, <laughs> somewhere in the Southwest. Yes. Uh, and we get it through the lens of the radio announcer. And um, I, I grew up uh, in the Southwest. And oh, so awesome. I have this like, when I first heard the show, mm-hmm. um, there's just this atmosphere that they capture that's amazing Mm -hmm. and then you know because i started listening to it fairly early on uh, i'm i'm uh, a a book nerd so i used to go to a a bookseller frequently uh and she was like there's this new show you should check it out and uh you know i started with the dog park yeah and um just listening to it it's like you can hear the desert, which is weird. Like, you know, that's that's a, a unique skill of the creators. Absolutely. Yeah. And it also captures, like, I didn't grow up in the Southwest, but I grew up in a very small town that was very conspiracy theory oriented, a uh, little, like, militia town in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, so, that's so it captures also, like, that small town paranoia really well. And then when it was revealed that the main character uh, was in love with Carlos, yes. I was like, of course he is. <laughs> we was always talking about his hair. Because <laughs> I'm in love with Carlos. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> I, it was kind of like I had that moment in Clueless where she's standing in front of the fountain where she's like, I like Josh. Like I was, I remember I was walking and listening to it. I'm like, I like Carlos too. <laughs> um, so, well, speaking of conspiracy theories, because I love stuff like this, do you do uh, you have favorite conspiracy theories that prevail in pop culture? Either of you? Oh my god! I've never gotten to ask a guest this before, <laughs> so now I'm thrilled. No, I'm 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 more obsessed with cults. And weird belief systems like like what well, you were asking earlier what i'm working on i haven't quite finished oh, yeah. it yeah, but yeah. um I'm, I'm i became really obsessed with the alt-right the last year and i've gone down some really deep dark disturbing rabbit holes of, Imagine. Um, <laughs> and i found this really fascinating dude that's openly gay and like wrote the book on like the misogyny like, well the, the masculinist movement um which is basically the anti-feminist movement mm-hmm. and like it's so i'm kind of fascinated by him and kind of trying to develop a queer horror with a character kind of based on him 
Um, but yes, yeah, so like I get really obsessed with like, oh, I read everything I can find about Scientology or right. um, Santa Muerta. Or, or, you know. I've always been interested in cult horror as well. Uh, I think because there is something to be said about um, mass influence. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in the the notion, like if I walk into a room and I say, oh, hey, guys, I'm Jesus. You're going to be like, that is a singular crazy person. Mm-hmm. But if I walk into a room and say, hey, guys, I'm Jesus. And three people in the corner are like, absolutely, he is. I want to know what their deal is that they're like, yeah, of course. We're going to just believe whatever this guy says. Uh, and so I've always been I love I love reading accounts of uh, Jonestown and how grim yep. and disturbing it was. Um, I remember watching the news the night the Heaven's Gate story broke. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Have you too. been to the Museum De- uh, Museum of Death in L.A.? They've got one of the mattresses. They have, well, yeah. they have one, of the, uh, one of the uniforms. The family didn't want to bury the family member, so they actually donated the uniform to the museum. Wow. I um, The thing that's really interesting about Heaven's Gate, I've dug into it a little <laughs> bit myself, is remember kind of like the first wave of Internet where people had like GeoCities and yeah. Angel yeah. Fire sites? Yes. So... Heaven's Gate had like kind of one of those like MIDI like music like oh wow really it still exists well and that's what I was gonna say it still exists and it's hasn't really been updated because they have like (laughs) but the thing is it's like someone's but it's a specific URL domain which means someone's paying for it someone actually will uh, um there's a there's an email and someone will respond to you if you email them. They left some people behind to basically to take I guess, care of the build, emails. They, to, 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 no, to like kind of build the movement for the next time Hellbop comes. Like, well, and they haven't updated the website in a decade. Like, <laughs> they're really like, kind of slacking on like their two, job. There's probably only like two of them. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, they haven't taken new courses in web design. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a mess of a site. I mean, like obviously, it's a whole mess of a problem beyond yeah, the yeah. site. But uh, no, I just remember stumbling upon it about a year ago and I was like looking at it and it was like you know old websites would have like new news and it was like new news like a couple <laughs> days before and I'm like Yikes, wow that's dark Meanwhile, like Nike, was it Nike? Yeah, Nike. Yeah. Nike discontinued the shoe that they all wore, yeah. just because. Yep. But like, apparently, like GeoCities can't discontinue the website. <laughs> uh, how about so conspiracy? We didn't get back to that. Um, I mean, I uh, it's I a just, tough call. Um, there's that one where people feel like they're being followed. I mean, there's like, um, I like. I don't get too into like government conspiracy theories, but uh, I like phenomenons a yeah. lot. Um, the the thing I'm obsessed with right now, which is kind of what my script that I'm working on is about, is uh, the My Way killings. Are you familiar with this? No. So apparently, um, whenever someone sings the song My Way in a karaoke bar, uh, often in the Philippines or like the that area, uh, somebody dies. <laughs> There's a you know a, a rage incident. Like people will. Um, there will be violence that erupts in from Sinatra karaoke bars, particularly around the song "My Way." Oh my God, I want to know all about this. It's fascinating, yeah. Because that's kind of uh, the idea of a haunted song. Yeah, that's exactly. Really cool. It's like a killing song, right? There was a, I think it was a Chuck Palahniuk book mm-hmm. about a lullaby that yeah, like caused right. like that's right, yeah. widespread. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love stuff like that. Well, there's yeah. a Billy Holiday song that everyone's supposedly killed themselves to, "Gloomy Sunday." Oh. oh, that's a sad song. Well, I that, can yeah. understand that. When it first came out, supposedly, and I think it's more of an urban legend, but supposedly, yeah, like, I love a good a urban legend. Absolutely, to it. yeah. Well, you know, kind of in the vein of Night Vale, but a, a allegedly true show, uh, Coast to Coast AM. Oh my God! Yeah, you have no idea what a fan I. Oh, Mel's Hole is my favorite. Do you know about Mel's Hole? This is the. Uh, it was a Coast to Coast AM. 
phenomenon. No. Uh, a guy called in in the late 90s to talk about a, a bottomless hole that he had found on his property up in Washington State. And um, it just, it, it goes totally batshit off the rails like his chronicle of testing the hole to see how deep it was and then putting different things in the hole and like what happened to those different things there was like a dead dog that goes down in the hole that's like running through the woods later and just like this amazing story yeah you know when i was growing up uh i remember sitting and listening to coast to coast am and for for listeners who you know the pre-podcast era, for yeah. those of you who know what radio is, <laughs> yeah. uh, on, honestly, every time I sit down in front of this microphone, I think of Art Bell. Oh my God, yes, um, who's insane now? <laughs> I know. Well, both of the hosts of the show have kind of gotten I mean, maybe because too many years of conspiracy theories have gone be. off the rail. Yeah. Um, it, it was the show that was and still exists, uh, where it would air late nights on AM yeah. radio, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Right, Host, hosted, <laughs> I think, initially by Art Bell and yep. later by George Norrie, yep. and they would just dig into what were allegedly true life conspiracies. And yeah, they did a lot of like Roswell stuff. Yeah. And, like, and, and then just like paranormal stuff also. And, and I distinctly remember one where like it was during that like satanic panic like mm, yeah. era mm-hmm. where uh, they were talking about real life exorcisms and they had like audio from one. Yeah, I remember that. And it was all like and whenever there would be like cryptids like the Jersey Devil or Bigfoot yes. there would always be these people that would call into the show and it occurred to me later that it was like the people that are calling in who was awake at that time <laughs> during that era it was usually truckers, truckers who were driving the long often haul often truckers yeah cuz before cell phones they were the only ones who would have the capability to call into a show mm-hmm. so of course they're seeing shit because they probably are like you know <laughs> they're on like 2 hours of sleep <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my god i i didn't know this is where this interview was going to oh go but god. i'm digging it <laughs> Um, I like that you're both working on queer horror projects independently, though. And I'm wondering, obviously, because A Close Rock with Thee has a a queer slant and and your subsequent projects sound like they do as well. How important is it to you as creators to make sure that queer material is included in your work? I don't I mean, it's what I know. Yeah, I guess. So like that's in it. But also, I feel like there's not enough of it out there. Mm hmm. So yeah, I guess I do feel like I like if I'm going to make something, that's what I can make for the world. That's what I can give the world that would be interesting. That would be something that I could make that's like specific to me. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean every. I mean, I guess not everything I've made has been completely queer. Like I mean, I've made a couple shorts that weren't, but um, but I mean they were just they were all based on like a gimmick or something. Right. But um, I think yeah, representation is very important to me. I think just as an audience member like you know I grew up as a viewer and consumer of things and so seeing queer representation was like so important to me when it happened that like that it's that it's become important to me in creating things also just because I know that feeling and like and sort of being starved for that subject matter and also for a day when like queer content and things doesn't label it as like a gay genre yeah. <laughs> movie or whatever. Well, I think that's kind of the long-term goal, right? You know, we we need f- female film festivals and, right. and gay film festivals, right. but the real goal is long, like to eventually just, just have film festivals. Yes. The fact that we still need to have separate things just shows we're still so far behind. Yeah. Uh, what I think is interesting about the uh the discussion about making sure representation and inclusion is part of our work is a lot of people will say, well, you know, I don't want to force it. Right. But you raised a really good point. You know, it's what I know. Yeah. And I think if you write authentically, 
it's going to end up in there anyway. Certainly, yeah. Do you remember the first time you watched a film or read a book or like saw a piece of media and you had that revelation like, oh, I'm finally seeing myself? Yes, for me it was Welcome to the Dollhouse, which is not a queer film at all. But right. um, and I appreciated it. Well, first of all, like I mean, that came out, I think it was like a junior in high school. So I was just starting to watch art films and just starting to like break out and question my religion and... I wasn't really even questioning my sexuality yet because there was just still this like maybe God doesn't exist question that was like looming over my head and right. and then and I was like I was like where I grew up it was a predominantly Latino neighborhood I was like one of the only white kids so I was picked on mercilessly I was uh, and um, and and then I went and then for high school I transferred to this really rich high school that I'd take buses to get to and like so I was like the poor kid so I was always the outcast. And when I when I went when I saw Welcome to the Dollhouse, it was just like Don Wiener became my hero. <laughs> I think that Don Wiener is a cultural icon, and I, I honestly feel like, uh, in terms of, of you know the gays like claiming characters, yeah, Don Wiener's time hasn't come yet. Like there are people who love her, like I'm one of them, but I feel like I want to go and I want to see like the Don Wiener drag show. Like I'm, I'm here for, I'm like ready for that moment. That would be amazing. <laughs> Um, I'm kind of drawing a blank on that moment. Like, I was really into the new queer cinema films in the mm-hmm. 90s, but of course, like, that's all really male-centric. Right. Um, I was really into those, but I, but I don't really remember having that moment with, like, a queer female representation epiphany. Like, there, there's Not just... Bound? I don't really know. It's a lesbian SM movie. Yeah. <laughs> with Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so then maybe not an epiphanal moment, yeah. but do you have uh, some favorite queer female centric films? Um, I mean, But I'm a Cheerleader is great. Yeah. I uh, love that. Um, I tend to like also. Uh, I think I translate like I pretend characters are queer. I'm like, yeah, like in Alien too. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> certainly that's a queer character, but like it's not expressly stated. You know that in the original Alien, there was an excise scene that would have suggested that Veronica Cartwright's character uh-huh. was trans. I did not know that. That's and, interesting. Yeah, and so there there has uh, been an interesting thread of LGBTQ elements that are in the first two Alien movies yeah. that are either subtle or just kind of like cut out, which yeah. is unfortunate. But I I always sort of liked the read of the film that uh, Ripley was kind of gender fluid. I enjoy that as well. I mean, they yeah. wrote the role to be gender fluid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they wrote the role without intention of a man or a woman. So, I... and it, and you could make the, the queer read, especially with the first movie. But then they kind of like, you know, once Michael Bean shows up, they try and do this sort of like, you know, strapping soldier yeah, meets. And right. Like, mm. Right. I mean, like he's fine, <laughs> but he's already he's already John Connor's dad. He doesn't need to be Ripley's beau too. Like, you know, let's. Yeah, exactly. Um, I will say this isn't a, uh, this isn't a queer thing, but it's more of a gender thing. Um, Really, so I saw the movie RoboCop at a really young age, oh. uh, and that was like my favorite movie when I was seven. Right, <laughs> um, but the the scene where there's a co-ed shower scene with all the police officers, um, that was really important to me. Like that, I remember that moment very clearly of seeing like women and men represented as equals, and like right. it's sad, but like that was so shocking and so just like wow, like that that's amazing. Like I feel like a human watching this <laughs> instead of like female person um, you, uh, and it's 
so fascinating that it's just something that simple. I know. Like, it's, it's that simple. Because I think that in American culture, especially, like, RoboCop was initially slapped with an NC-17 yeah. because of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but we still culturally with film will take violence over sexuality any day. Uh, yeah. So the fact that, like, you know, an epiphanal moment or, like, an eye-opening moment of just, like, how we treat gender and sex and yeah. sexuality is just, like, people taking a shower, which is a yeah. function. It's right. not, There's nothing sexy about it, per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like these these future visions of... Uh, of communal showers yes or maybe it's just a Paul Verhoeven thing because it not only happens in Robocop but they do it later in, in Starship, Starship Troopers, Troopers yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Paul Verhoeven just likes to have lots of success <laughs> yeah you know I, I think that Paul Verhoeven uh, is someone who doesn't get brought up a lot we were talking about auteurs I'm, I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of his Me too. but yeah. he, oh he's great I mean he, he, like we've watched Showgirls together and of course Showgirls is a is a train wreck but it's also a beautiful one but then like Elle is absolutely stunning um, I'm a huge fan. Uh, you know, I love Showgirls, and I, 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 knowing that you're both fans, I have to dig into it because <laughs> Showgirls to me. It, well, first off, with no shame, I will say that Showgirls is the film I have theatrically seen the most times. Amazing. I have yeah. seen it in the theater so many times it, to the degree that I can tell you there's a phenomenon that only happens in Showgirls screenings where it's either going to be a crystal night or a Nomi night. <laughs> and the audiences will like lose their shit for one or the other, but like they're rarely like on, on both sides. Wow. Uh, but what I think is great about Showgirls is, is it's truly a fine wine of a grindhouse movie because it ages better and better each year. And um, especially with Verhoeven, when you look at how excess, you see he's a filmmaker of excess and that's his hallmark. All of his movies are like movies of excess. But what's interesting about Showgirls and the things that critics slammed it for, the -the over-the-top performances, the kind of like quote-unquote unlikable characters, when you really step back and think about the fact that the movie was made by a European filmmaker who is looking at an American city of sin and this American like capitalist ideal and uh, ambition and greed everyone's a terrible person and is over the top and is overstated because it's kind of probably what people think of Americans. Mm. The only good character in the movie gets punished. Right, and he was, yeah. but he also apparently, he thought of it as his MGM musical. Yeah, it's a Busby you know, Berkeley kind of He was yep. trying to make this massive musical, so of course, yeah, it's over the top. Um, I think if you, if you had a different lead performer, I think the movie would have gone away. I don't think it would be the the as celebrated it is today. Yeah. But I think because you you took a relatively inexperienced television actor who needs to be big and was only mm-hmm. on like a teen comedy and put her nude in front of like all these lights. Yeah. It just yeah, that over the top performance is kind of what kills it for I guess killed it at the time, but actually is part of what makes it so enjoyable now. I think it's what elevates it because I think that um you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And she no one got beaten up for that movie more than Elizabeth Berkeley. Well, Gina so Gershon somehow came out of the movie looking yeah, better. Yeah. She knew. She she was <laughs> like, like she, she was she, the one person who knew what movie she was yeah. in and what where it was going. Well and Kyle McLaughlin too. Well I'm, but yeah. men never take the hits that women do for That's these kind true. of things, which is so unfortunate. I mean well it's not I don't want anyone to get Kyle <laughs> Hitler hair and no one no yeah. one said anything. Um <laughs> but you know the thing that I always say about Elizabeth Berkley in that movie is there are few performances in the annals of film history where someone is that committed. Like <laughs> it's, it's true. her and 
Tim Curry and yeah. Rocky Horror. Those are like the two great cult performances because they are literally acting with every cell of skin. I'm, I'm going to add Baby Jane to that. Oh, Baby Jane. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, sure. They, they kind of grand, that's almost like more Grand Guignol, but with that over-the-top melodrama, but yeah. So you're a big Baby Jane fan? Yeah. Well, I'm not a huge Baby Jane fan. I'm a huge Grand Guignol fan, but yeah, I mean, that movie's amazing. Do you have any uh, Grand Guignol uh, favorites beyond that? Well, I mean, they're really more plays. Like, yeah. that's, that's one of the few movies that has actually been made that kind of was successful. There's a couple more, but I've never really... I, I was more into the theater. I've got, I, anytime there's a Grand Guignol performance around town, I will go... That's actually how I met the person that I met Brie through. It was yeah, actually true. at a Grand Guignol workshop where we were learning like how to do theatrical blood yeah, effects. Yeah, she's, she's a performer. <laughs> she's a, does a lot of. She's a clown. It just must be good to uh, go to shows with you. You seem to keep meeting people who. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you two met at a movie. You said. I don't remember what that movie was. It was oh, a friend. I was going to ask. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, um, we went to see. Was it Downtown Independent? Uh, shoot. Now I'm blanking on it. <laughs> Never mind. It was a, a movie that DNS friends had made, and so she wanted us to go to it. <laughs> and then, but actually, the next time we really met was, so we met we met there, and then we ran into each other at a party. And I had tickets for like AFI, a bunch of AFI screenings, and mm-hmm. my friend that was supposed to go to it with me bailed. And like it was like that weekend, and I was like, "Hey, do you want to go see a bunch of movies this weekend?" And so she came along, and we just literally went to AFI and like stayed there for like twelve hours and saw like five movies or something. I now remember what the film was. Uh, my friend edited it. It's called Electric Children. That's right. Uh, this is a brilliant indie film about fundamentalist Mormon kids that get let loose in Vegas. That's oh. right. Now I remember. Yeah. So <laughs> you literally <laughs> met that at a fundamentalist uh, religious film. <laughs> so it was destined to be. Yeah. And then at mm-hmm. AFI, we watched like a Korean horror film and like a weird art, like a kind of, we watched a whole bunch of weird films and like yeah. we're talking about our love of films afterwards. And kind of at the end of the day, I was driving her home to drop her off. And I was like, do you want to make something together? <laughs> oh. Well, what you made is truly fantastic. Thank uh, you. you, know, Thank you. Uh, and I keep rarely actually as as my producers will attest will I have guests on that I like just like so I'm like hero worshipping the film but like I uh, I it's also rare for me to see a movie especially in today's indie landscape that just is so shocking but like makes me want to like kick down doors and be like we have to talk about this <laughs> uh and um our friend who who introduced me to the movie who uh frank from altered innocence like, you know the second i watched it i'm like you need to you know get a bottle of wine because we have to have a talk <laughs> <laughs> so i, I want to offer uh you know my, my big congratulations and to listeners please check it out um, thank you so much yes thank you before we head off into the night yes. um we talked earlier about some of the things that you've seen recently, but because this is a horror show, mm-hmm. uh, are there any horror movies that just like changed your life or that you truly love that you really think people need to see? Um, so, so my favorite horror movie is The Innocence from 1961. With Deborah Carr? Yes. Mm. Um, I think that film is brilliant. I think it does everything right. And I think it's genuinely scary, which I don't, uh, I don't ex- as much as I love horror, I don't experience genuine fear uh, in horror movies often. Um, and it's so. a beautiful film. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And it actually kind of slightly inspired our movie because um, of all the birds. There are a lot of bird troops. There's a lot of bird, birds. In the uh, <laughs> and well, for us, there were just a lot of birds in the neighborhood that we had, couldn't get rid of. We just had of. to so we just, uh, when incorporate. We turned, when, when, we, when we went to the sound designer, we were like, add more. 
Like, like they're already there, but they're kind of sporadic. Make it sound like it's not, like you know, add more. And it was something we talked about. Was that, that is film. true? Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna have to sit and watch it again and look for the birds. <laughs> there, yeah. Well, the, there's a very interesting. That movie is very interesting for sound design because it um it uh it's it makes a disproportionate like things that you shouldn't be hearing loudly you are hearing loudly and other things are quiet and uh, it's very disorienting in lots of subtle ways you're talking about the innocence the innocence yeah, yeah. Uh, and Criterion just recent well not recently but it, yeah. it was remastered they, mm-hmm. by them and it's a beautiful beautiful yeah. version of the film um trying to think of like movies people wouldn't I mean of course like I, my favorite horror films like Texas Chainsaw but um, one movie we talked about a little in the movie just in terms of the black humor uh, in a movie I think is really under like people don't none of the people have seen it is The Loved Ones mm, the Australian or is yeah. it New Zealand it's, it's yeah. Oh, I don't know. Oh. I thought it was Australian, but you, Emma, everyone gets those mixed up. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, I mean, I, as I learned from Death Proof, you don't confuse the two. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Or Zoe Bell will come kick the shit out of <laughs> it. So, what'd you say? It's a film from the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Indeed, it's fantastic. It's, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, some critic, I guess, called it uh, "Pretty in Pink meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre," and that basically became their tagline. Um, and that's a perfect description of like the first half of the film. Mm-hmm. And then it just has this really dramatic shift. I mean, so it's already a really dark, disturbing horror film, and then it goes even darker. And it's a pretty brutal movie. It's yeah. and, and I and then he just had a new one come out. The same director finally had like uh, came out with what was it? Um, the Devil's Candy. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, which I think is on Netflix now. Yeah, yeah. It's but um, it's hard to find the loved ones. Yeah, I highly recommend it if if you can find it. Well, I do remember the loved ones came out at festivals. It was one of those weird international horror films that came out like around 2010, but didn't yeah. get released here until almost like 2013 so if, mm-hmm. if you had wanted to see it back in the day you either had to catch it at a festival which I was luckily lucky enough to do otherwise it wasn't just yeah. impossible to see it was a, a all the boys love Mandy Lane situation uh-huh. where yeah. you heard about it for years and years and years and just never got a chance to see it but no I think those are both uh, two really great recommendations and both high concept horror films and uh, in the way that they present more than just your average yes. slash and dash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, where can people find you? Hmm. Um, well, you know, the, the movie, we're most active kind of on Facebook. I know we should be more active on Twitter and Instagram. But I'm um, like, I'm on Twitter technically. Yeah, uh, so am I. But, <laughs> uh, but I don't tweet much. But I'm uh, at Brazilianair on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not, yeah, we're not very active online, I guess. Well, uh, if you do a, a quick search of A Closer Walk with the Film, you yeah. can find them uh, both on Facebook and, and Twitter. Bree, John, thank you for joining me today. Thank you thank for you. having us. Any final thoughts for our listeners? I, I don't think so. I don't want to ruin it. This no. was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to end on perfect. So thank you again. <laughs> this has been Dead for Filth. As always, I'm Michael Verratti, yours in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.